1: That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parents' plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com.
0: Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. to help Cam H. treat addiction and build hope. You may have heard by now that the Mounties unlawfully arrested journalists last week. Again. Amber Bracken and Michael Toledano were both on assignment in Wet'suwet'en Territory, covering the protests over the coastal GasLink project and the police response to it. On Friday, RCMP officers broke through the door of the tiny house they were inside with an axe and took them into custody, where they remain as I record this. The cops knew Amber and Michael are credentialed reporters. They'd been given specific advance warning that they were there, and they knew about the numerous court precedents confirming reporters' right to be there and limiting the RCMP's power to detain journalists. Full disclosure, Canadaland has signed an open letter from the Canadian Association of Journalists to Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino denouncing this gross overreach of state authority, this assault on the free press. The Mounties need to free these journalists Immediately. But that's really just the least of it. If you listen to Canada Land, maybe you know that there are some problems with the RCMP. For example, their failure to stop a very long massacre in Porto Pic and their cover up of that after the fact. Also, their unlawful brutality against unarmed protesters at Ferry Creek. Since our last report on that story, the Mounties have claimed that they had to aggress on the protesters there in order to protect an injured officer. Well, Ricochet Media and the Capitol Daily revealed that to be just a lie. Still just the tip of the iceberg, though, if you listened to the season on policing produced by our sister podcast, The Excellent Commons— You know that the RCMP's history is a long story of scandals, of sexual assaults. It just goes on and on to the very beginning. And each time the force has its dirty laundry aired in public, it looks like there might be some level of accountability, and then it all slips away. The question that gets asked is always the same. How do we fix the RCMP? How can we save the RCMP? But maybe that's the wrong question. Is the RCMP even worth saving? That's the question Jane Gerster is trying to answer. Jane is a freelance journalist who has reported extensively on the RCMP since 2017 and has just published a new feature in the Walrus Magazine on why the problems that exist in the RCMP are built into the very foundation of the force. In a moment, she will join Canada Land reporter Sheree Sucherin, who has also been covering the Mounties for some time, and they will talk about why this specific branch of Canadian law enforcement is so resistant to reform and what needs to happen if anything is ever going to change. Wait for it. (whistles) This episode of Canada Land will be listened to by 40,000 to 50,000 people, the vast majority of whom aren't paying for it. Most people who listen to this show don't pay for it. And if you're hearing me say this, you're probably one of them, because the people who pay us to make Canada Land, they get a premium fee that doesn't have this on it. And what I want to say to you, if you are one of those people who listens to this show and doesn't pay for it, Welcome you are welcome here. That's part of the idea. That's that's how this works is that the people who pay for the show are paying for the rest of you to listen to it. They want you to listen to it. We don't pay well this show. We want to have as many listeners as possible. We want our journalism to have as much impact as possible. You are welcome at this party. You were invited here. Please don't leave. But like any party, I don't know. Bring a bottle of wine, you know? If it's a dinner party, you can have a good conversation. Bring a dessert, bring a salad, bring something. Do I have to tell you this? You bring something, not just because that makes it easier to host the party, but so that you feel better. You don't feel like a schnorrer. You're not just coming and enjoying everything and taking. You leave a little something. It's a gesture. You feel better at the party because you brought something. If you listen to Canada land, you could be listening to any other podcast. There's lots of good podcasts. It's your time. It's your life. You're choosing to spend a portion of it with us, with me, with this show, with our other shows. And we're super grateful just for that. But come on, you know, pitch in a little just so you feel better about the exchange. There are other analogies I could use. Sometimes I feel like I'm a busker and I'm on the corner with my acoustic guitar and I I don't know, I'm I'm playing uh, knocking on heaven's door. Okay, people seem to like that one. Most people don't. Most people just walk past me as I play my acoustic guitar on the street corner. But not you. You love knocking on heaven's door. I see you grooving out to my sweet, sweet acoustic guitar tunes every day. And, you know, I love that. I love seeing you there. I wouldn't be playing this if people didn't enjoy it. That makes me feel good too. But you've been coming here every day and just swaying back and forth, really grooving out. And it's getting weird because you haven't reached into your pocket yet. For your sake, for your comfort, as much as mine, come on, throw a little change in my case. And I'll tell you one more thing, because I know that there are some of you listening to this who are saying, Jesse, I've heard this before. I've heard this shtick from you before. You made that same comparison to the dinner party, bring a bottle of wine. You said that last year. You said that the year before last year. Buddy, that says more about you than it does about me. Why do you need to be told for three years straight to bring a bottle of wine to the dinner party you keep showing up at? Okay, I'm really sorry. That got a little bit more aggressive than I usually go. I'm out of pitches. I have exhausted all of my techniques. Crowdfunding is over. I am not going to go hard for another 11 months. I'm done. I kind of get into it. I can have fun in crowdfunding month, but really, I would much rather just be making these podcasts, and that's why we compress this into a month so we get the heavy, hard pitching out of the way and just go back to doing our jobs of making you these podcasts. So that's it. If if what what I've said so far hasn't compelled you, I don't know what will, but uh, we need your support. We really do, and we want to do great things with it. And you're here anyhow, and it's so easy. Go to CanadaLand.com slash join. Click the link in the show notes. Thank you.
2: Your latest piece in The Walrus, it covers years and years of reporting on the RCMP, and it really shows. Can you tell me what got you started in telling
1: these stories about the RCMP? My good photographer friend sort of connected me to a community advocate in northern Alberta, um, which sort of connected back to her cousin's case, the unsolved murder of Crystal Knott. Who was Crystal Knott? Crystal Knott was a Métis teenager who went missing in 2005, uh, who was missing for three years before the RCMP publicly announced that she was missing, and that time discrepancy, like that sort of, um, that three-year period, I could never get a good answer from the RCMP.
0: And the remains of two women were found near Grand
1: Prairie, Alberta. The first to be identified is 19-year-old Renee Lynn Gunning. She went missing in 2005. Gunning and her friend, 16-year-old Crystal Knott, were last seen at West Edmonton Mall in February of 2005. They told friends they were planning on hitchhiking home to B.C. Her favorite song, according to the woman who raised her, was "Up" by Shania Twain, and so I've actually just (laughs) listened to that song so much in the last like it's just like whenever I'm like working on it or like trying to get into the zone, I that's what I listen to, and then I just think of Crystal, and I mean like Crystal was the exact same age as my older sister, so every time like my older sister goes through a life milestone, I I think of Crystal, and really I've done all of this in a roundabout way just to try and find some more easier to live with answers, I guess. You talk a lot about how the
2: RCMP has sort of been, as you quote, lurching from crisis to crisis. How do you decide which of these cases to report on and highlight?
1: It's a hard question to answer because it's a little bit gut at this point. But I am looking for cases that illustrate the bigger issues because, you know, sort of the established premise through so many of the reports and sort of the expert inquiries is that the paramilitarism of the RCMP is a problem, impacting everything that happens within it. So I look for cases where you can see that because I think that's a really hard concept. It's it's not as easy a concept for people to see as like, you know, we know they didn't use this alert. We know they didn't do this. It's sort of harder to be like, well, what is the impact of the structure on the culture and how did that then impact these people on this random day and whatever? Like, it's not a... It's not a simple concept, so uh, I look for those cases.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you touched on this idea of the RCMP as this sort of paramilitary force. And I did want to talk about that. It's a big theme in your Walrus piece, and a lot of the issues with the force, you argue, have been baked in from the beginning as this paramilitary force. Can you take me back to the creation of the RCMP, formerly known as the Northwest Mounted Police? In eastern Canada, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald is raising money for a transcontinental railroad. The railroad will bring white settlement to the west and put an end to any threat of the United States annexing the territory. But first, he must get rid of the whiskey traders and make a lasting peace with the Indians. Macdonald's solution is to create a police force of mounted riflemen who will pacify, then control the west. On May 23rd, 1873, by an act of Parliament, the Mounted Police Force of Canada is born.
1: It was created to serve multiple purposes, one being sort of a way to say, hey, back off, this is our area to the Americans. The second is to actually just bring the Canadian governance to the West, and they did that through the Mounties. And it's a bit more of a a restrictive, sort of punitive, you will do what we say system, and that you know, John A. Macdonald was inspired to do that by the Royal Irish Constabulary. Um, And the choice in red as the uniform was also very deliberate because it was to play upon good relations that Queen Victoria had with Indigenous people. So it was a lot of thought that actually went into this will be a paramilitary structure because that will allow us to maintain control of it, even from a distance. When looking back at the RCMP, how much of this history is about racism? A lot, because the Mounties were very much created to uh, subjugate Indigenous peoples. So Mounties took Indigenous kids to residential school. They were involved with relocating Inuit communities further north to isolated communities. Um, So, you know, a lot of their, their history involves carrying out some pretty horrific government policies. You know, that's institutional. That racism is institutional from the beginning. And then you see a lot of racism in terms of the RCMP's handling of immigrants and xenophobia as well. So a lot, but not all of it. And
2: so I understand the RCMP or Northwest Mounted Police, as they were called, played a really big role with the past system on First Nations. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, I can tell you that the Mounties didn't think it was legal and you know, so they raised concerns about that, but ultimately the government said, No, this is what we're gonna do. So that's what they enforced. You know, and for a time the government actually moved the mounties under the, you know, under what was at the time the Indian Affairs Department. So um So the Mounties were directly under Indian affairs. For a while, yes. Wow. People seem really surprised about that, or they'll frame it as like, as you argue, as you say, as you assert, and I'm just like, No, it's actually just it's in McDonald's letters, it's in the documents. So um Yeah, it's not, you know, it's a very, it's a really well-known history among a lot of people, just not the general Canadian public.
2: Right. How did the Mounties go from this body under Indian Affairs to this national police force known as the Royal Canadian Mounted Police?
1: Basically, it's, you know... It's an evolution. So you use them a lot to settle, and then once the job of settling is mostly done, some of them went abroad with the Boer War, and then some of them went abroad with World War One. But World War One and sort of the influx of immigration leading up to that led to a lot of Mountie work monitoring people. Essentially, they went from subjugating indigenous peoples and clearing the plains to monitoring the movements of immigrants and, and spying on them. And then in the aftermath of the First World War, there's just a lot of demand for their spying and a lot of unrest, and they're able to to argue for it. But like Essentially, the Mountie Commissioner of the Day wrote his memos, and this was the future that he wanted, and he articulated it very powerfully in the aftermath of the Winnipeg general strike, and the federal government was on board.
2: Right. Particularly interesting what you're saying about surveillance, which is something that um, has been discovered to this day the RCMP are still doing. I mean, I personally had no idea all this information about how the RCMP got started, and I have reported on the RCMP for several years now. So I think this is kind of surprising, and it's so different to this idea of the RCMP as these symbols of Canadian identity. How did the police force manage to work its way into the Canadian psyche in the way that it has? Fiction novels
1: and films. Fiction.
2: Fantasy. More than a hundred movies have been made celebrating the prowess of the Mounties.
0: These men and women are some of the newest members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, also known as the Mounties. The RCMP is Canada's federal police force, known worldwide for their iconic scarlet tunics, referred to as the Red Surge. Each cadet gets fitted for their tunic about halfway through their 26-week training program.
2: It's a really exciting moment. It makes you very proud to be here.
0: When you put it on, you feel pride. I cannot
1: believe it when I saw myself in the mirror. From early 20th century novels all the way to Netflix, you may find it difficult not to trust the officer in red. It is an image recognized all around the world. The scarlet uniform and Stetson hat of the Canadian Mountie. Well, CBC News has learned that that image is going to be marketed by a U.S. company, the Disney company. There's been a lot of really great academic work on this uh, that people should absolutely read. Uh, One of the more recent ones is by historian Michael Dawson, who did The Mounties from Dime Novel to Disney. And it started with Dime Novels. Like, it started with these stories about Mounties, and they were always white, English-speaking people who often, like, reclaimed their identity in the woods of Canada, you know, by helping indigenous peoples who were always painted as in dire need of intervention by them. And it's these, like, these sort of romance adventure novels, and they're very compelling to people, and they tell stories that all exist in the same world, so it's consistent enough that it can feel like nonfiction. Like that it can feel like truth because if in every story the Mountie is this good guy and he looks exactly like this. And in every story he's always doing this and that's always the bad guy and that's always the good guy. That becomes very compelling. And when, you know, and then the Mounties were able to at moments really lean into and develop develop that
2: image. So this image, it's something that a lot of Canadians believe in. Has that changed your approach to how you tell these types of stories?
1: Yeah, (laughs) because, like, I think about, like, who I imagine my target audience to be, and I imagine it to be people who do not know this history. Mm -hmm. I'm not writing for the people who already know it. I'm not writing for the people who've lived it. I'm writing for the people who still reach for that sort of fuzzy, wonderful, warm image when something bad happens. So they see these repeating issues of use of force or, you know, sexual harassment class actions. They see this, and they can sort of go, oh, no. They're so good, though. They're a symbol of national identity. They're the best of us. And so I'm writing for those people. And to reach those people, I think you have to show them how the myth works. You have to show them how it was built. You have to actually get into the specifics of the ways in which the RCMP sometimes benefited from the image and the ways in which the RCMP sometimes manipulates the image. Because I think once you understand that, it's easier to spot it yourself when you read any sort of story about the RCMP. Like, you can start to sort of see how it factors in.
2: Mm-hmm. How would you say the RCMP manipulate their image?
1: There's a lot of protection of the image. And, like, even on, like, the 1990s show Due South, there was a Mountie who, like, consulted for that. And you go back to the 1920s and the Mounties are, like, actively there consulting on film scripts to, like, shape how people see their members in fiction. Like, there was, like, a UFC guy, I think it was UFC, who used the Mountie as a name and they, like, intervened to make him stop because it, like, wasn't good with the reputation. Quebec wrestler Jacques Rougeau's early 1990s villain, the Mountie. Introducing the new intercontinental champion! and
2: then eat your hair out, And you, Piper, you bring your skirt to Royal Rumble on Sunday, because I guarantee you that's the only thing you're going to leave the ring with!
1: Who marches into the ring uh, to do battle carrying a cattle fraud. Well, this is not the image that the RCMP wants circulating in the public. But the RCMP realizes there's not much that the police force can do if uh, an international company decides that they want to use the image in ways that the RCMP doesn't like. And that convinces the RCMP that it needs to find a way to try and control the use of its image. Rougeau, now retired, could not wear his full costume or use his popular character's name while performing in Canada. The public enforcement of the RCMP's image was underway. The Walt Disney Company spent the rest of the 1990s managing licensing rights.
2: Going back to some of the problems that you've highlighted with the RCMP, and I do want to touch on maybe the biggest case when it comes to RCMP failure, which is The Picton case. In December of 2007, Robert Picton was convicted on six
1: counts of second degree murder.
2: The Vancouver Police Department's report on its missing women investigation has been made public. The document confirms women's lives could have been saved, but a series of mistakes and omissions by police investigators failed to interrupt Robert Picton's murder spree. It's
1: disturbing enough to see Robert William Picton questioned by police 12 years
0: ago. Even more chilling to know afterwards he just walked away.
2: I mean, they can say this story all they want, but what does story mean? If they were women from SFU or UBC or exchange students, they would have acted upon it totally different. Because of their background? Because of their background, because they were drug addicted prostitutes, they were throwaways. And that's the end of the story. They were throwaways and nobody gave a damn. And now they're apologizing? It doesn't cut it for me. Obviously, it had a lot of attention on it. What do you think the important takeaways were? regarding how the RCMP dealt with the Picton murders.
1: I think one of the things that comes up over and over again is the hubris. Just this, like, mounty idea that they know best, that they're the best at their jobs. And you see that come up in the ways in which, you know, people coming forward to say, someone is missing, you know, this bad thing has happened, are dismissed, or, you know, all sorts of other reasons are given— You know, one of the things that I wrote about in the Walrus piece was the time when Picton was arrested for attempted murder. It was later downgraded and dismissed. But you see after that, like, there's a Mountie who actually thinks he's the most realistic person in the serial killer investigation. And it doesn't go anywhere. Like, it doesn't go anywhere. And you have the Vancouver police saying, you know, like, this is our suspect, but this is your jurisdiction. And a lot of the summary reports and and sort of the inquiry documents that looked at it show this inconsistency or this poor quality investigation. Like, not enough questions, not enough probing, not enough actually taking someone up on an offer to search his farm. Like, he offered to let them search his farm, and they didn't go. And then in the end, a weapons charge and a guy goes in and he finds the evidence and you get that serendipitous discovery. And that's certainly a parallel that people have noted to Porta Peak and the gunman, and, you know, the Mounties running into him at the gas station and shooting him. Like, it just, there are some parallels that make you sort of question what the instructions are that people are receiving, like what the institutional priorities are, and that also fits into sort of a basket of bigger issues, which include reports over and over again about how they are stretched too thin. They're doing too many jobs and they're not all being properly trained for those jobs and they're being moved around. And all we ever really seem to get from the RCMP as a response is, you know, like, no, we're on it, they're trained, we're working on it. And, you know, my own personal reporting perspective is that you have to earn people's trust that way, by showing them that, you know, if you're saying, trust us, You have to have earned that with your record, and that's not really borne out in their record. And so I think that's where some of those repeating failures in cases like Picton and Peak really stand out to me.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.
2: Something that was in your piece that really struck me was when you spoke with uh, Rob Gordon, Can you tell me, who is Rob Gordon?
1: Rob Gordon is a former police officer and longtime criminologist at Simon Fraser University who is very heavily involved in the issue of policing reform in B.C., particularly with respect to the RCMP. He's a pretty heavy critic. And I quote, he said, "...the
2: RCMP saw themselves as being cock of the roost, and these municipal forces were lesser mortals." That's a well recognized problem that keeps surfacing and then disappearing again.
1: It's not that I've noticed like people walking around like you know thinking they're all that uh, so much as um, it's this nonstop belief in the goodness of the organization. Like the myth persists even for people in the Mounties who have so many experiences to show that the myth is just a myth. Whenever I interview people even when they've been through the worst or they've experienced it, like there's still a part of them that just thinks so highly of their own organization. And that's what they're taught. Like they're taught, they're taught the myth just like the rest of us, and yet they're also treated very poorly, as many reports have shown, by their own employer. So it's a weird, it's a hard mental thing to unpack where you're like, you feel very poorly treated as a member, but at the same time, like, you've been fed this, like, we're so great at our jobs.
2: And with this case, I mean, obviously, there's so much controversy about it. There was um, so much criticism that it garnered. Did it actually spur any changes? Like the Picton case? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's much better collaboration networks and, like, plans for when you have serial killers. So practical policing changes have been made. But none of them, like, deal with that cultural paramilitary myth, you know, because that's the harder thing to mandate reform on, barring actually saying we are going to demilitarize this institution.
2: So the inner workings of the RCMP have been challenged as well, and something that you looked at is how it impacts employees. Can you tell me a little bit about the case of Suki Manj?
1: I guess I'll start more generally first, which is the RCMP, as I've said, is a paramilitary. It's a hierarchical top-down organization. And so what that means is the training is do as I say, not use your critical rational thought and make a decision based on the context of this specific scenario, which I think people can figure out the limitations of those approaches (laughs) themselves. Um, But that impacts how they interact with their own, and it impacts how their own are treated when they do things that Uh, seniors perceive as insubordination or stepping over the line or, like, making them look bad. And that comes up a lot. And the 2017 CRCC report that looks at the, quote, dysfunctional culture, unquote, makes that really clear, the ways in which the system allows people to use it against people, not necessarily if they have evidence. And so the case of Suki Manch in Alberta really talks about one guy who had great performance reviews. I've read so many pages of them where they just talk about he is doing his best. Like, sometimes he's a bit too aggressive with these things, but he's just trying so hard and he's instilled this sense of strength in us about our work and... You know, he is married to another Mountie, so he's quite familiar with the declaring the relationship policy in the force, and essentially when he became aware that there was a relationship between two people and he started to sort of say, like, you need to declare it, they got mad and roped in his bosses, and the entire detachment sort of spilled into a he-said-she-said people taking their teams. And in the end, after a confrontation between one of the jilted spouses of one of the Mounties involved in this case, he and his wife were leveled with code of conduct um, allegations by the RCMP that they had, you know, not done their job correctly or, like, abused their position. And both of them were completely cleared, and, like, the decision says, like, honesty, which is a core value of the RCMP, could have resolved this entire affair. Um, And he's he's out. He hasn't gone back to work. He's been cleared, and he's done. His wife has been cleared, but she, you know, is filing a lawsuit for... uh, I can't remember what the technical term is, but, like, abusive process, like, malicious prosecution, I think. For me, those cases illustrate how, sort of on an individual level, like, well-intentioned, working really hard to think about things in new ways, Mounties are not staying with with the RCMP. Like, they're losing. They're losing those people. So in your
2: piece, you kind of touch on the different forms of oversight that exist for the RCMP. Can we kind of talk about what is working and maybe not working with those types of bodies?
1: Yeah. Um, So I think what's important is like the main RCMP complaints body for the public is the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission, the CRCC. Um, And they do a lot of really important work. And every time I see the commissioner quoted or, you know, in testimony before the House of Commons or something, like she's always advocating very strongly for what they need to do more work on behalf of the public um, in terms of understanding, you know, and holding the RCMP to account. So I think that there is there's clearly, if you read the reports, they're holding the RCMP to account as much as they can in every single line and with what they ask for them and like what you know how they call them out. Um, the problem is they can't actually force the RCMP to do anything. They can't actually say like you must change this, and. You know, the RCMP shows signs in some of their more recent reports, one of which I talked about briefly in that piece, of not even being willing to, like, good faith engage with (laughs) the process. So how effective those processes are going to be in a decade, we'll see. The RCMP has a union now. We'll see how that also factors in. Alberta's considering, you know, leaving. Surrey's working on it. Like, all those things are sort of at play. Yeah, so on the show of reported extensively
2: about Ferry Creek and how RCMP actions against protesters, against media, have been dealt with. And something that really struck me and what I kind of realized doing that reporting was that the bodies that we have, at least to my knowledge, including the oversight bodies, the complaint bodies, the media, if you count the media as a check on police, they really don't seem to be able to actually do anything or change anything. Does
1: that feel true to you? On a pessimistic day, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I try not to be pessimistic when I actually write, but I am very in most of my other interactions. Um, I sort of go back and forth. I don't really know that I live in one, I inhabit one space for too long. Um, I think there's like a Martha Gellhorn quote where she talks about how the people who never get justice, at least the justice you can get is someone writing very clearly what happened to you. And I think that, All of those organizations do their absolute best to do that. Like, we've had so many commissions over the decades, you know, court cases and stuff that have just really pushed to broaden the national understanding of what it is to be a Mountie and to be policed by a Mountie. And I think we're moving somewhere. Like, I think we're moving somewhere. I don't know that I always know where we're we're going, but, like, I, I do think that they can make change because they are leaving a really strong paper trail of just of outrage and, and, and a roadmap to accountability. And so I have to think that that counts for something, but no, I feel not very hopeful about what these organizations have accomplished except for they very clearly left a roadmap that many people are picking up and using to try and tell these stories. Can you tell me quickly what the YVR four is? Yes, yeah, so that's the four Mounties who were involved at the Robert Chikansky tasering at the Vancouver YVR airport uh, in 2007. On October 14th, 2007, Polish immigrant Robert Chikansky was tasered by the RCMP at the Vancouver airport and died. The officers tasered Chikansky after he began behaving erratically in a secure section of the international arrivals area, yelling and throwing items against a plexiglass wall. <laughs>
0: However, before that happened Chikansky spent nearly six hours wandering around the secure customs area of the airport without being noticed by anyone from the Canada Border Services Agency. The last moments of Robert Jekansky's life were recorded in this video in 2007 at Vancouver International Airport, a video that provided a starkly different account of what happened than the officers involved. Two were convicted of perjury, an RCMP spokesperson died by suicide, and an inquiry led to questions about tasers and the establishment of the police watchdog, the IIO. In
1: the fall of 2007, Constable Quasi Millington was barely out of RCMP training. The night he was one of four RCMP officers responding to a call at Vancouver Airport, he had never used a single weapon in his kit. Now he's convicted of lying about what happened that night. Millington pulled the trigger on his taser five times in a fatal encounter with Polish immigrant Robert Jakanski. The four of them were involved in the tasering. They maintained that they were just following protocol at the time and they have alleged in many lawsuits that have been settled that they were scapegoated by the RCMP when the RCMP basically came under a lot of public fire for their handling of that case.
2: You have been reporting on RCMP for a long time, and it shows. But you're not the first person to try to get at these major issues that the force is grappling with. I mean, what have you learned from the people and the reporters who have taken this on before?
1: Uh, I've learned the value of doing enough reporting so that you can say what you mean. Um, I think a lot of the best reporting on the RCMP over the decades that I've really loved has been very direct. It's been very clear. It's made it clear why something is a violation of people's rights, or it's made it very clear why something is... Pro- like, they just don't really mince words, whereas I think we, a lot of the times, can get really sucked into, like, and here's a quote from this report, or here's a quote from this report, and it just it just is all from, like, the summary, and we, we didn't actually go that in depth, and obviously that's a overgeneralization. Some people do, but... Like, I think sometimes in journalism we get really fixated on, like, this is the case. This is the case. Like, we are—this is the one thing. Like, this is—and I, I think we lose something. You know, like, this is the reporting on this issue. And it's just like, no, actually, we all need to be doing this reporting, and we need to be doing it from many different angles, and we need to be trying to really clearly explain things to people. And we need to—we need to read the reports, like, page by page— because the summaries of some of those reports like don't even touch some of the issues within them. We have a treasure trove of very specific information that helps us understand how the RCMP operates, how it thinks, like how different parts of the RCMP interact with one another. We have all these examples and we don't we don't incorporate them into our work. We allow our work to sort of be positioned I think as this is the, this is the scandal. And in doing so, I think you inadvertently distort the fact that One scandal, even if it's very different from another, there's so much similarity in how we got there. So that's really all I want, is more people to understand the way in which the culture and structure of the RCMP impacts the promises they make and how we should be evaluating those promises. Like, should we be putting stock in them? Should we say this is as momentous as it is? Like, you know, how much is an apology worth if you just then keep repeating what you were doing, right? You know, in this
2: question of reform, there's one thing that really comes up and it's the Port Peak incident on the night of April 18th, 2020. Port Hope, Nova Scotia, a village of about 100 residents on the Bay of Fundy, became the starting point of what would become a shooting rampage.
0: I walked up looking for my brother with a flashlight and I could see a body laying on the side of the road. As I got closer, I could see it was my brother. I got one more step closer, I could see blood, and he wasn't moving. I shot my, my, my flashlight off, I turned around, and I ran for my life. So there's a structure fire. Uh, there's a person down there with a gun. He was in possession
1: of a fully-marked and equipped replica RCMP vehicle,
0: and was wearing a police uniform.
1: How in the hell is he not a red flag?
0: Little did I know, that would be the last kiss
2: I'd have. This is a series of 22 homicides. They failed to give the public the information they needed to stay safe. They failed at that. Families whose loved ones were killed by a gunman in Nova Scotia are taking legal action now against the RCMP. They're launching a proposed class action lawsuit over how the force responded to the shootings and how the Mounties have been handling the case since. There is this public inquiry that's happening. Do you think it has the power to compel or impact changes
1: to the RCMP? A lot of... The impact of these inquiries seems to be um, driven by public rage. If it's an issue that the public glums onto, then it becomes an issue that the federal government has to deal with. And that, like when I started this, I used to worry that the problem would be solved before I finished my book. And... And every time there was, like, a really bad headline or, like, a new expose or something, I was like, this is the one. This is the one that's going to be the tipping point for the Canadian public. And nothing has been. So, personally, I don't count anything out for its possibility to affect change. But I think the evidence is pretty clear that if you don't actually change the structure anything you do change is constantly fighting an uphill battle against that structure to be impactful. So yeah, maybe it could do something really great that helps, but how much is that thing that the Porta Peak inquiry decides going to be able to actually accomplish if you haven't changed the hierarchical top-down way in which the Mounties operate? I don't know. I, I It's hard... I think it really depends on what actually succeeds at making the problem feel like something that urgently needs to be addressed. I think it's very hard when it's such a big organization and an issue that's happening in in Nova Scotia is different from B.C. and and to corral it all together is tricky when you're also trying to sustain readers' attention. There's a lot of
2: hope and rage in the families that are affected, I think. Um, Hope in terms of getting some form of justice through this inquiry and, you know, the rage happening because of the things that they've went through, the horrible things that they went through in Porto Peak, do you think they will get the justice that they want?
1: That's hard, right, because justice is so personal and I'm not each one of them, so their definition might be different. I mean, in recent years, there's been a lot of calls to defund the
2: police or get rid of police forces. So when it comes to RCMP, do you think we should... Throw it all away, start with something new, or do you think there is the capacity for reform?
1: So I these are questions that I usually ask other people, <laughs> not myself. Um, and I I would say the answers that I get when I ask people are very different. Um, some believe it can be reformed. Some do not. Some very much would like to see it completely like spread up so that you don't have the RCMP operating both locally and provincially and federally, um, so that you have it sort of have one, one uncomplicated, non-competing master. And then you know, there are those who want it gone entirely. And there's a lot of options for what we can do you know, what reform could look like, but we've been boxing ourselves into this, like, tiny sense of, like, you know, this committee, that committee, whatever, when every single report has said, you need to change the structure. How you do it, people have different thoughts on, but we have to think bigger because that's what the experts that we have paid so much money to over so many decades have told us over and over again. Doing anything within the structure will not impact much if you haven't changed The boundaries within which they're operating.
2: That's kind of all the things that I wanted to touch on. I I just wanted to say thanks so much for sitting down with me.
1: No, thanks for having me. And thanks for reporting about the RCMP.
0: That is your Canada Land. If you liked it, please help us make it. Go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. We're on Twitter at canadaland, and our website is canadaland.com. Uh, There's a whole podcast network that you'll find at canadaland.com. Uh, lots of great shows, publishing excellent episodes all the time. Subscribe to them if you haven't yet. This episode is produced by Cherie Sucherin and Tristan Capicione. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So Called and syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like this show, all I'm going to say for a while is please support it.